Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and today we start Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, at this point, the, the prophecy, because remember that when John ate the little book, he was then told there were things he must prophesy, that is, to bring God's word to bear in the situation in which he lived. Prophecy is not to tell the future. It's to speak the word of God into the moment in which the prophet lives. And so John is called to speak God's truth into his moment. From that point that he eats the little book until he stops speaking into that moment. So in that context, you have to understand that the sounding of the seventh trumpet and this vision in chapter 12 are meant to be proclamation of God's word in that moment, not future telling. So we talked about the fact that everything in chapter 11, the everything that happens at the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the second half of chapter 11 is the telling of the story of Christ again. And it's the repeat of that story um, in, in context that would allow uh, the people reading the book who understood the, the story of Christ to tell it to the listeners who hadn't heard the gospel yet. It's a way to review their salvation history. And so it's a little awkward because we've all been taught that the book of Revelation is future prophecy. It's future telling. And so when we find out that a whole bunch of it is not, and maybe all of it is not, except the very end, it's a little awkward for us because we have to undo decades of, of our own mislearning and the misteaching that was done to us when someone grabbed bits and pieces of the book of Revelation and tried to tie it back to things like Zechariah and Daniel to tell us that, ooh, it's going to be so bad when this Revelation stuff starts happening. But most of it already has. And that doesn't make it any less effective. That, in fact, makes it more timely and in a lot of ways more terrifying. So look with me now at chapter 12 with that context in mind. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great omen is the way I've translated this word. It means miracle sign. A great miracle sign, a miraculous sign, appeared amongst the stars in heaven. This is in the second heaven. You know, the first heaven is the air we breathe. The second heaven is where the moon, the stars, and the planets are. The third heaven is up past that where God lives. A great omen appeared in the second heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. The moon was under her feet, and on her head she wore a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and cried out in pain of labor in the moment of childbirth. At that moment, another great constellation, another great omen appeared amongst the stars. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. 
Now the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child or swallow her child. Then she bore a son, a male child, who will shepherd all the nations with an iron staff. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman then fled into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her by God that she might be protected for 1,260 days. Three and a half years, 42 months. There was a battle in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back but were defeated. As a result, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Then the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, who leads the, the whole world astray. He was thrown down to the earth and his followers were thrown down along with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The victory, the power, the kingship of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now begun. Have now begun. Because the accuser of our brothers and sisters was thrown out, the one who accused them before our God day and night. They overcame him through the blood of the Lamb and through the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and those who dwell in heaven. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil, who is very angry, was thrown down to you, because he knows that he has only a short time. I'll take a break there and kind of deal with everything that's in this passage. This is the telling of our salvation history in apocalyptic and symbolic terms. And there's a lot here. The Holy Spirit through John portrays this entire scene as playing out amongst the constellations. The, the ancient Jews believed that the stars gave miracle signs. So when the star appears to announce Christ's birth, it's a mystical thing. It's a miracle sign. And, and the, the Magi, the wise men from way over to the east, the area of Pakistan and India, they came because they understood it. We don't get it. We just know that when the sky changes, something's happening. Now remember, this is not a physical story. This is a symbolic story. This is about constellations suddenly appearing. Doesn't happen, right? It's and they don't have color. Not this much color. It's a it's a picture story. It's a pericope, uh, an event story. And you're supposed to understand it in the same way that you would a parable of Jesus. And so this great omen appears and it's a woman clothed with the sun or clothed in the brilliance of the sun. It's the same it's the same descriptor that was used in Revelation, I think it's 116 when when John describes seeing Jesus glorified, first time he's seen him in his heavenly state and it says his clothes shone with the brilliance of the sun. It's exactly the same phrase. She is clothed the same way clothed with the sun. The moon was under her feet, or she tread on the moon, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. Who is she? She is Israel. 
Israel is the light of the world to the Gentiles. They are the people of God. They are the children of the original covenant. They are wrapped in the clothing of their God. They shine with the brilliance of the sun. It's really interesting to me that it says her feet were on the moon. The moon was under her feet, or literally she was treading on the moon. Because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. They don't use the same Gregorian calendar that we use in modern days. Our calendar is based upon what we know about the rotation of the earth on its axis. That gives us the 24-hour day. And then the orbit of the earth around the sun, which takes about 365 days. Now, it's not exact. It's not exactly 365 rotations to an orbit. And so we have leap year. Every fourth year, we have to we have to do a little trick so that we keep it normalized and the seasons don't wander around the calendar. The Jews used a lunar calendar because they could observe the phases of the moon. And so they have different months than we have, and they observe them in a different daily cycle. Uh, but it was a lunar calendar. They, they literally walked through life by the cycles of the moon. She treads upon the moon. So that would set her apart from the Romans who used a different calendar, see? And so it's a clue to those who understand Judaism and Jewish customs and practices that, that when they got this letter, they would understand who she was. A Roman who read this would think it was a fantasy. She's clothed in the brilliance of the sun. The moon is under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. If you had any doubt before, your doubts are erased now. She has a crown of 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel. But she's pregnant. She's vulnerable. Immediately, as soon as you meet her, you learn that she's in a vulnerable position. She's pregnant. She's crying out in the pains of birth in the very moment of bearing a child. Uh, she's there right now. She's screaming. Israel is screaming to give birth to this child. She's been waiting for months or centuries. She's been waiting through all of the prophecies, through all of the foretelling, through all of the expectancy, right? She's been expecting this child, this, this Messiah. That's who they're talking about. There's no doubt. She is crying out in the very moment of childbirth. A woman in the moment of childbirth is out of control. She's just trying to have that baby. And that's where, that's where Israel is at the moment that we see her here. And as she's in that very moment of intense pain and focus and desire to have that child, another constellation appears. A great dragon. I find it really interesting that dragons appear in the mythology of the Celts, the Chinese, the Indians from India, Israel, over and over and over this mythical beast called a dragon, and if you see the Greek word, it looks like dragon, 
there is this creature in all the mythos of the world. And yet, for all that we can know, dragons never really existed. How do they occupy this place in the shared mythos of all these different cultures? It's fascinating to me. And in the Jewish mythos, the dragon is an enemy. He is that serpent from the garden who betrayed the first man and the woman. He was then probably portrayed as winged and able to speak to the man and the woman. And because of the curse, his wings are taken off. He is cast into the dirt and he is made to crawl on his belly. His ability to speak to us is taken away and he's turned into the snake. And, and in, in, the, in the Jewish legendary culture, this explains why if you kill a snake and you flip him over on his back, along his stomach, there are these parallel markings, these short lines that run in parallel from just under his head to just before his tail. And, and in the Jewish legend, they flip him over and they say, see those? That's where the wings used to attach. He was a winged creature with speech. He was beautiful. He was enchanting. He was able to lead people astray. And now he's just the enemy who crawls in the dirt and tries to poison us. But here, he's returned to his, his mythos of glory. He is the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads is the appearance of perfection, right? Seven's one of those perfect numbers. He appears to be complete. He appears to be an entirely perfect creature. He was created, it would seem, to be that way. Seven heads. You can never get away from his gaze. He can't be everywhere at once, but everything in his vicinity he can see and pay attention to. He doesn't miss anything. You're not going to sneak anything past him. And ten horns. That makes him a trick to draw because he's got more horns than he's got heads. So which heads get two horns and which get three horns? Or do some of the heads have one horn and some of them have four? I don't know. <laughs> it's not meant for us to try and draw the beast. It's simply meant to show that he's very, very powerful. Horns in Old Testament mythos are the symbols of power. The horn is the symbol of power. Rams have horns because they're strong. This thing has more horns than it has heads. Catch it? It has more strength than it has brains. It's stronger than it is smart. And, and you're not supposed to miss that. You're supposed to keep that in mind through the whole rest of this, of this book. That the enemy that you face in his original form and in all his duplicate forms in the spiritual world and on this earth is, is stronger than he is smart. He's a powerful dummy. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and flung them to the earth. Now, here, the Bible shows 
the dragon himself flinging a third of the stars to earth. In a moment, it's going to tell you that they were expelled with him and the whole kit and caboodle was flung down to the earth, which is kind of terrifying when you think about it. But right now you're seeing him in his original created form to be this wonderful, beautiful, powerful thing in the heavens, but he's not going to be for long. Now, the next word is interesting because it's in this moment. Now, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. He understands that the child that's about to be born to her is an adversary of such power that he'll never be able to overcome it if he doesn't catch it at the first moment it steps foot on this earth. So he he poise, poises himself right in front of her so that when she has the child, he can devour it. Then she bore a son, a male child, who will shepherd the nations with an iron staff. Or you could read this, who had just begun to rule the world. That's also a fitting translation here. And she bore a son, a male child, who had just begun his rule. Now, it's not going to be interrupted. It's not going to change. He has just begun his rule. The devil opens his mouth. He's about to get him. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Zoom, he's gone. This is not a rapture. This is not the church. This is Christ caught up from the destruction of the devil. Think about that for a moment. There's a whole bunch of the story here. And you know the story. You know enough that if this letter came to your church and people who'd never heard the story of Christ said, what? You could say, okay, let me tell you what all plays out here. There's a baby born in a manger. The devil may not know he's there. Seems like he sneaks into the world. As he grows, he begins to grow in wisdom and strength and power until he's adult age and he's about to enter into his public ministry. And then the devil, somewhere along the line, figures out who he is and comes to tempt him and, and offers him shortcuts if, if he'll just bow his knee and worship the devil. He'll give him all the things that the devil supposes that the Son of God has come to claim. But he doesn't take the bait. The devil goes away frustrated and looks for another opportunity. The Bible says that after his temptation in the desert, the devil went away to wait his chance for another opportunity to get him. And over and over, by using people, the devil tries to ensnare him. The devil tries to catch him. The devil tries to get them to stone him. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't work. Until finally, in in, in immense frustration, the devil decides he's got to kill him. And so he has the people send him to the cross. Now, the Bible says that if the enemy of your soul had known the plan for your salvation, he never would have had Jesus sent to the cross. If the devil had known the plan of your salvation, he never would have had Jesus sent to the cross. He thought he was winning. He thought he was killing the son. He thought he was going to devour him. He would die and God's plan would be thwarted and, and our redemption could never take place. He didn't realize he was accomplishing our redemption 
unbeknownst to himself, more power than brains. He has bumbled himself right into God's trap, and Jesus knows it. And when Jesus says on the cross, it's done, it's finished, it's accomplished, the word means. It's accomplished. He yields up his spirit and he cries out in a loud voice. The, the Greek term is phone magale. It's the shout of victory. It's the shout on the battlefield of the victor in the battle. It's the one who stands over his slain opponent and goes, Hurrah! it's not the death wheeze. It's not the surrender sigh. It's a shout of victory. And when the centurion at the foot of the cross hears that and sees that with that shout, Jesus gives up his spirit and dies, the centurion, the heathen centurion says, surely this was a son of a God. This is not how people die. This is not how mere mortals die. This man must have been the son of a God. He doesn't understand who Jesus was, but he understands that something tremendously amazing has happened here. Jesus has been caught up. He yielded up his life. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it. He yielded up his spirit. When they came to, to stab him with the spear to help him die faster, he was already dead. And so, well, they came to break his legs and he was already dead. So they opened his side with a spear and the water and the blood flowed out, right? So his spirit was given up. He was snatched away before the devil could devour him. And the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her by God. This is a direct reference to the diaspora. This is a direct reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is why I believe the book of Revelation is written around 90, 95 AD. Because here's a direct a direct reference to the fact that Jerusalem gets crushed. The woman fled into the wilderness, out into the Roman Empire, away from Jerusalem, where a place had been prepared for her by God. The diaspora was God's design for Israel, that she might be protected there for 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. That imperfect time, God still has a plan for Israel. Because she's birthed the Messiah. She has not lost her covenant with God that has existed since Abraham. She has simply been the vehicle of the birth of the Son of God and the redemption of the world. God's not going to fault her for that. Okay? So this isn't a message about judging the Jews. It's a message about preserving the Jews and the birth of the Messiah and the next section is going to tell us why the devil exists on this earth, why there is evil and sin and temptation. But to this point is the gospel story. And we see now the mythos behind the faith that we hold. The mythos behind the truth, right? That, that we've known from Sunday school or that we're hearing from our preacher now or that I'm telling you for the first time in your life maybe that this is the story of our salvation history. 
that the Jews carried for a thousand years or more. A covenant with God that that did not leave them saved. It didn't leave them redeemed. It left them still in need of salvation. They had a promise, but it was unfulfilled. And the fulfillment could only come when the Messiah was born into their into their midst, and he was. And then, just as he had begun to reign, right? At the moment he died on the cross, just as he had begun to finally reign as the Messiah, he was caught up to heaven. His reign continues. He hasn't lost his authority. He's just changed places. The God that you serve, the Christ that you serve, reigns today from his place at the Father's side. He is one with the Father and has prayed that you and I would be one with them. He judges the world from that place. He judges you and I either at the end of our lives, at the end of all time, or in the moment that we surrender ourselves for judgment. That's what happens when I become a Christian. In the language of my preacher, he says, confess your sins to Jesus Christ and be saved. Confess. Confess means I'm the guilty one, right? It means we're having trial right now, and instead of dragging it out, I'll confess. Let's get straight to the judgment. The promise is that if I'll confess my sins and trust Christ, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. That's what the Bible says, word for word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just because justice has to be done. Someone has to pay the price for the wrong that we've done, for the sin that we've committed. Who gets to pay? Jesus has already paid the price. If we confess, Jesus steps in and says, your price is paid. He redeems us and he saves us from that ultimate judgment we would have had to face. Our judgment at the moment that we receive Jesus Christ, our judgment is had. And so when the Bible says that those who are in Christ will not even face judgment, the Gospel of John, he's not kidding. Jesus is not kidding. It's already happened. We face judgment when we understood the weight of our own sin and confessed it before Christ, either in a a confessional system, in a confessional church, where they taught us that that's what had to happen, or in the emotional moment of an evangelical faith, where we may have walked down the aisle and knelt knelt at the altar and confessed our sin there. It's the same either way. We confessed our sin. We brought the judgment upon ourselves in that moment under under the watchful, redemptive cover of Jesus Christ, and our judgment was had, and we were found to be in him. And our price had already been paid by him. And in that moment, we became an eternal creation. We became an eternal child of God. Our eternal life started in the moment that we confessed him as our Lord and Savior. I think that's really good news. Wherever you are today, whatever you're facing, your judgment has already been had. (laughs) Praise the Lord, you have already been judged and you were found guilty, by the way, and you were found in absolute deserving of absolute judgment. You should have died, but Christ had already died for you. 
And so, on the record, the Father appropriated his sacrifice for your sin. And so you, the guilty, went free. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? See? You, the guilty, went free. Christ, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be made the absolute glory of God. The righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in him we might be the absolute righteousness of God. It's not your own righteousness you're carrying around. It was given to you. It was imparted to you. It was credited to your account, even though it wasn't yours. And nobody's coming to take it back. You get to keep it. You get to walk into heaven clothed in the brilliance of the sun, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, because you made him your savior. I know that some of you who are listening to this may think this is kind of a new thought, or you may never have heard it in these terms. And so if it's new to you and it's something that you say, wow, Kevin, if that's really the truth, I want that. I I need that righteousness credited to my account because my own is filthy rags, as the the Apostle Paul says, right? Um, In fact, the Apostle Paul said that everything he'd ever done was a pile of poop compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And sometimes I look at my life and I say, what a pile of poop. Maybe that's where you are, but Christ has righteousness for you in that place, in exchange. You hand him all your poop and he gives you the righteousness of God. So if that's something that you need today, I want you to turn this off, turn off the podcast, turn off the radio, turn off all the noise and sit wherever you are in a quiet room in your car. And I want you to say just a brief prayer. And you can make up the word yourself. Just admit to God that you're a sinner and that you deserve his judgment. And you'd like to move that judgment up to today. And you'd like to ask Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to stand at your side and in your place for this judgment. And then you'd ask him to be your Lord and Savior from this day forward to guide your steps, to guide your thoughts, to help you mature into grace and redemption and faith. But today, Father, I'd like to have my judgment today and I'd like Jesus to stand in for me. Go ahead and pray that prayer. And then talk to your pastor. Talk to your friends who have walked with God for some time. Tell them that you've made this commitment, that you've started this journey, and ask them where you go from here. They'll help you. Your pastor will help you. If your friends don't know, that's okay. Everybody walk off to the pastor and ask him to help everybody. But I want you to go and have the best day of your life because you've started it afresh with Jesus. Jesus.